The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvic Kinase Deficiency. My name is Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and your host for today's episode. You'll remember Carla Chichester from part one of our Mythbusters episode. She's living with PK deficiency, and we're once again going to dispel some more myths about pyruvic kinase deficiency. Carla, welcome back to part two. On part two of Mythbusters PKD edition, Dr. Rachel Grace and TikTok influencer Carla Chichester are going to dispel some of the most common myths about PKD. If a person has PK deficiency, it means their children have a high likelihood of having PK deficiency. I think this is an important myth to dispel because I do think there's a lot of misinformation about this. So pyruvate kinase deficiency is autosomal recessive. It means you have a copy of a gene variant inherited from each parent, whether it's the same gene change or a different gene change from each parent. And in order to have pyruvate kinase deficiency, you have to have both of the PKLR genes affected, so two gene variants, which means both of the parents have to have pyruvate kinase deficiency or carry it. And so if a person has pyruvate kinase deficiency, unless their partner has pyruvate kinase deficiency or carries it, then their children will be carriers. They won't be affected by it, but they'll have it. Since pyruvate kinase deficiency is very, very rare, it is unlikely that a partner would be a carrier, but it would be easy for a partner to be screened for pyruvate kinase deficiency to better understand if a child would have the potential of having pyruvate kinase deficiency. If a person has pyruvate kinase deficiency and their partner happens to carry it as well, then their children have a 50% chance of having pyruvate kinase deficiency and a 50% chance of being a carrier. Most people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency will have a partner who neither carries pyruvate kinase deficiency or has it, and therefore their children would be carriers but not have pyruvate kinase deficiency. The good old genetic Punnett square. That's right. But I do hear a fair amount, especially young women who are worried that their children will have pyruvate kinase deficiency. And in certain communities where there's a higher frequency of people who carry pyruvate kinase deficiency, for example, in the Amish community, that is a real worry that someone could be partnered with someone who does carry pyruvate kinase deficiency. But in the general population, it's much less frequent to be a carrier. But of course, people can easily be screened through genetic testing to really have a clear answer about this before having children. PKD patients will not have energy to keep up with their children. 
I agree that many people with pyruvate kinase deficiency have children and manage family and friends to keep up with their children. And I think just as we were talking about before, that the symptoms of people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency can be so variable. How much you're able to keep up with your children can vary too, depending on what kinds of symptoms you may have or not from pyruvate kinase deficiency on an everyday basis. And it's important for everybody who has children to consider what their support system is and who can help them. And it's always wonderful to have family and friends who can help with children and their needs as you raise your family. Iron overload only occurs in people who receive blood transfusions. It depends on the hemolysis, right? And within your body. That's right. So we know that everybody who receives blood transfusions on a regular basis develops iron overload with the blood. You receive the iron that's in the blood and you don't have a good way for your body to get rid of iron over time. It's tightly regulated so that you don't get rid of iron. So if you end up getting infusions of iron, which is what you get when you get infused blood, then you don't have a good way of getting rid of it. So we know that everyone who receives blood transfusions on a regular basis will develop iron overload. But we know for people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency that there's iron loading that happens independent of blood transfusions as well so that people are at risk for getting iron overload, even if they've never had a blood transfusion. And we saw that in our registry studies where a significant proportion of people who'd never received a blood transfusion had iron overload measured by ferritin or through MRI studies, despite not having received blood transfusions. And we think that has to do with the way that red blood cells are being made in the bone marrow in a process that's called ineffective erythropoiesis, which means you're not making red cells effectively. And through that, you have disruption in your iron regulation pathway so that you start to absorb too much iron through your intestines as a mechanism to try to help with the anemia. That's not very helpful. And with that, people who aren't receiving blood transfusions just through that disrupted way of making red cells because of pyruvate kinase deficiency develop iron overload. And so it's important for everybody who has pyruvate kinase deficiency to be monitored for the development of iron overload over time. It's one of those types of studies that can be done on an annual basis, for example, in people who are not receiving blood transfusions. Symptoms from PK deficiency get better after childhood. Um, no. <laughs> I don't, don't know how to elaborate. Actually, I think I got worse. <laughs> I think that the misconception that pyruvate kinase deficiency is more symptomatic in childhood comes from data that children who have pyruvate kinase deficiency are more likely to be transfused than adults with pyruvate kinase deficiency. And part of that is because children get many more viral infections than older children and adults get. And that leads to more red cell breakdown, which then leads to more transfusion needs in a lot of children. And also, we don't consider splenectomy in children until they're the age of five, usually, or older because of the risk of infections like we were talking about earlier. And when children have their spleen and they're more likely to have increased red cell breakdown and more transfusion needs. So children less than five typically have the highest transfusion needs. And then that sort of leads people to the belief that they're more symptomatic then or they have more issues related to their pyruvate kinase deficiency. 
And even I can say from my own experience that at medical conferences, I've had adult hematologists ask me, well, where do all the people who have pyruvate kinase deficiency go? You have them in your pediatric hematology practices, but then we don't see them in our adult hematology practices. But I think this gets back to what you were talking about before, even within your own family too, that if you don't think anything's gonna happen at those visits with your adult hematologist, maybe some people who have pervade kinase deficiency stop going to see the hematologist because they're not yeah. satisfied with what happens at the visits or the type of care that they're getting. And it's not that people aren't having symptoms or that they don't have pervade kinase deficiency still. They just aren't sure how best to address the symptoms and the issues they have. Definitely. How did you find pyruvate kinase deficiency as an adolescent in your teenage years? I was just very tired and I couldn't really keep up with my peers, but I didn't really pursue any sort of hematology help until I was about 22 or like 21. I flipped the switch, I guess, in my brain where I'm like, all of these symptoms could point to a source. So I guess the brain fog and the, the fatigue could explain behaviors, but I didn't really attribute them to my anemia. That's interesting. I, th I think it's a tricky time being a teenager, you know, having any chronic medical condition, but having pervic kinase deficiency where maybe there's this thought that it's worse in early childhood and that it's getting better over time. And so it's a time of transition and the need for self-advocacy and describing your symptoms, which can be really hard to learn how to do. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. PK deficiency is always diagnosed in childhood. I know a couple people in the, the Facebook group who just got diagnosed when they're adults. That's right. We know that people can definitely make their way through childhood either with an unrecognized anemia or having a hemolytic anemia that's not just diagnosed as a specific type or having a specific diagnosis, but that it's the wrong diagnosis, that they're said to have a different type of hemolytic anemia when actually it's pyruvate kinase deficiency. And it would be my hope that as we have treatments that have improved and as we've learned more about pervic kinase deficiency that people are being tested once the anemia has been recognized for this specific diagnosis so that people are getting to a diagnosis earlier in childhood or earlier in their lifetime. But we know that it's a need for adults who have anemia to be evaluated and that pervic kinase deficiency needs to be considered in adults who have hemolytic anemias, even if they're coming in for the first time later in life. If there are no gallstones before splenectomy, then a cholecystectomy at the time of splenectomy does not need consideration. We know that after somebody has a splenectomy who has pervic kinase deficiency, that they continue to have red cell breakdown afterwards. 
that most patients, most people will have a rise in the hemoglobin after having their spleen removed. They'll potentially have a decrease in the number of transfusions or not need transfusions altogether, but that the hemolysis, the red cell breakdown continues. And with that, you have the continued risk of gallstones that's probably the same as prior to the splenectomy. So whereas in some types of hemolytic anemias, the splenectomy completely resolves the hemolysis and the anemia, and therefore the risk of gallstones in pervic kinase deficiency, that's not true. So at the time of splenectomy, we often consider, should we take out the gallbladder at the same time so that we never have to worry about the development of gallbladder complications going forward? So we always look by ultrasound to see if there's gallbladder stones or gallbladder disease at the time we're considering splenectomy to see if the gallbladder should come out. But even in the absence of that, we often consider removing the gallbladder at the same time so that a year, two, or even longer down the road, there aren't complications related to gallstones or a second surgery needed to remove the gallbladder. And so that's important for clinicians to think about at the time of splenectomy, which is different than for other types of hemolytic anemia. So it's specific to pervic kinase deficiency and a few even more rare types of red cell enzyme problems. If there is no anemia or jaundice at birth, then a patient could not have PK deficiency. And we know that that's not true from our own experience, taking care of children who have pervic kinase deficiency or adults even who are diagnosed later with pervic kinase deficiency and based on our registry studies so that if a newborn doesn't have significant jaundice after birth, oftentimes, and they have good energy and they're feeding well, then blood work's not checked. So there's not even knowledge about whether there could be anemia. And without that jaundice, there's not concern about red cell breakdown. And so it may be that somebody gets to be in an older childhood age or even into adulthood before it's realized that there's red cell breakdown or before it's realized that there's anemia. And so it is important to remain suspicious that someone might have pervic kinase deficiency even without having symptoms or anemia or jaundice in the newborn period if they later are found to have anemia and thought to have a hemolytic anemia. Carla, I want to thank you for joining us today and for all your contributions to today's podcast. I know the information you shared will help others with PK deficiency and dispel some of the common myths about PK deficiency. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pervic Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.